Morning, everyone. As always, it's a joy to be with you, and I'm excited to uh, open up God's Word for us this morning as we read it and as it's preached. Uh, I would invite you for our Old Testament reading, this will also be our uh, sermon text. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Second from the last book of the Old Testament, if you're wandering around. We'll be, sorry, Zechariah chapter 1. We'll be reading the the prologue here, uh, verses 1 through 6. Zechariah 1, starting in verse 1. Hear now God's holy and inspired word. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? And so they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Thus far the reading of God's word. Now for our uh, New Testament reading, I would invite you to turn to the the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. We'll be reading starting in verse 1 through uh, the first half of verse 15. Second Peter verse, uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring you up, uh, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved, burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Thus far the reading of God's word. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we have heard your word read, Lord, as we anticipate it, Coming to us in the preaching of the word, God, and as with every part of this service, Lord, so now we, we need your help. God, for, for your word to be effective in this time, you need to make it effective by the powerful working of your spirits. And so we ask that you would do that in this time. We ask that you would bless us through your word, that Christ and his gospel would be magnified in it. I do pray in this time that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sure many of you, like myself, have had the experience of running into an old acquaintance from time to time, someone you haven't seen in maybe a few months or even a few years. Uh, maybe it was a good experience, maybe it was a bad experience, maybe you weren't hoping to see them, maybe you're hoping to avoid them, but nonetheless, you bumped into each other. But whether it's good or bad, I'm sure we can all uh, relate to the experience of having an awkward encounter with someone we haven't seen in a while, right? It's awkward because we don't know what to say. We don't know where to go, right? We have a lot of catching up to do. We don't know where to pick up the conversation from the last time we may have spoke with them. Or maybe more than just an awkward encounter, maybe you have had an estranged relationship, someone that you haven't seen in a while because of hurt feelings, because of a falling out, and you see them after a long time. Again, it can be awkward, even painful, right? We don't know what to say. We don't know where to pick up the relationship, where to, you know, how to move forward in our conversation and in this relationship with the other person. Well, imagine that, but imagine that after 70 years, and you have a sense of what's happening in the book of Zechariah, that introduction that we read just a few moments ago. The people of uh, the, the Jewish people who have returned from the land of exile, who have returned from the east, they've come back and they haven't heard from their Lord, they haven't heard from their covenant God in 70 years. He's been silent to them. So you can imagine things are a little awkward. They don't know what to do, they don't know how to resume, how to pick up the pieces from that 70 year. Hiatus. God has not sent a prophet to them. He hasn't sent a word in decades. The people have returned. They've been in the land at this point in the beginning of Zechariah for about 20 years or so. And just a couple months before Zechariah's prophecy, his kind of co-prophet of the time, Haggai, has sent a word from the Lord. Haggai basically says, you know, get off your behinds and start building the temple. What, what are you doing in these lavish houses? You need to start rebuilding and now Zechariah comes, God comes, uh, his word through Zechariah, and now he's not dealing with the temple and kind of their external situation, but he comes with this word for them, 
he comes to tell them what they need to do, right? Essentially, he needs to, uh, you know, he's not un- uh, you know, flapped by awkwardness, by long pauses in relationships. He comes and tells them exactly how to continue their relationship, what they need to do to make things right, what they need, what is essential for them to restore their relationship with their estranged God. So that's what we want to see this morning in this prologue to the book of Zechariah. We want to see three things that God says are necessary for his people, three things that these people need to know or need to do in order to continue their relationship with their God. And so as we consider these three necessary things, I want to see them under three headings. The first need this morning, the first thing that God says you need is this, then you need true repentance. So the first thing this morning is the need that the people have for true repentance. We're told God comes to them in Zechariah 1 through uh, this prophet Zechariah, this uh, more than likely son of a priest, and this time period of the king Darius, the king of Persia. And the first thing God says, the very first words out of his mouth through the prophet Zechariah is, I was angry with your fathers. Doesn't seem like the best way to start, right? God says, hey, I was really mad at you guys. I was really mad at your fathers for years and years, 70 years. It's more than him just saying, I was angry. You know, literally the phrase is something like, I angered my anger upon your fathers. I poured out my anger upon the previous generation. And really, as God says this, as he begins speaking in you know, one sentence, one phrase, God is really summing up the last 70 years of Israel's experience. I was angry at your fathers, and this is the aftermath. This is what the last seven decades has looked like because of it. And in many ways, God really didn't need to say this. The evidence was all around the people. You know, they left to exile 70 years previously, and there were approximately somewhere around 100,000 people in the land of Judah at the time. They're all, for the most part, banished. There's some you know, poor farmers that are left behind. They go away to exile, first to Babylon. Babylon's then taken over by Persia. And as they come back, only a few thousand come back to retake the land. And only about 1,000 people are left in the city of Jerusalem. It's a mere shell, a mere shadow of what it used to be. It's former glory. It's former splendor. Even as they look around Jerusalem, the temple has been destroyed that was the, you know, the final act, the final mark of the exile. That, you know, this was God's de- you know, definitive word that the temple itself was destroyed. God's presence had left Jerusalem. Now they're looking around. They see no temple, just the foundations of the temple. People are poor. They're, many are destitute. They're you know, bake, uh, barely making ends meet. And even the title of our book, as, as Zechariah begins, reminds the people of their situation as you know, time now is not marked by the king of Jerusalem or the king of Judah, not marked by David's descendant, but it is marked by this foreign king, King Darius. Darius now, the king of Persia, is the one marking their time and controlling their lives. And yet God wants to affirm, I was angry with your fathers. I did this. That the punishment that you all have heard of, the exile, you know, this uh, picture of death, the death of God's people, this punishment away from the land of promise. This was something that I did. It wasn't fate. It wasn't circumstance. It was me. It wasn't even Babylon. It wasn't even Persia. It was the Lord himself who poured out his anger on his people. Yet after saying this, God now gives this wonderful 
Invitation in verse 3, return to me, he says. Return to me. The implication being that I was angry with your fathers. Return to me, otherwise the same thing is going to happen to you. Please return to me. Return to your former ways. And as God gives this invitation, we want to ask, you know, how? How are they to return? They're already back in the land, so clearly God's not talking about physically coming back to the land of Judah. Yet if you're familiar at all with the language of the prophets, the, the prophets before the exile and now the post-exilic prophets are picking up that same language, but returning is this language of repentance that the prophets use over and over, this language of not external turning, but a turning of the heart. God is saying an an internal change must happen, an internal turning, an internal uh, direction change of your life has to happen now. And this is what true repentance is, right? It's a turning of our desires of our wills from one direction, turning them to another. So God's saying, you need to do this. And yet, more than this, more than just a change of heart, God is also saying you need a change of allegiance. In that call in verse 2, we see three times, uh, or sorry, verse 3, Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Not just any name, but he calls himself the Lord of armies, the mighty, victorious God who is you know, over the world, who is, uh, who is powerful over all things. That's the God you need to uh, return to. Remember, they've been under the, these foreign powers for 70 years now. They're probably used to them being in charge. They're used to thinking of themselves as subjects to these foreign kings. And God is saying, no, you need to return to the true king, to the Lord of armies. So with this call to repentance, God is telling them, and also, of course, as he calls us to repentance, he's calling us to take stock of where we put our trust, who or what it is that we are placing our trust in, what we're placing our hope in. He's challenging us to ask, where is it that we find our security, our satisfaction, our joy Is it in this political power? Is it in this area of cultural influence or relevance? In this particular status, in this source of wealth or financial stability? Or, as God's saying, is it in me? Is it in the Lord of hosts? And, of course, this call, it's not just telling them they need to change their hearts. It's not just telling them that they need to change their allegiances, but it is a very personal call as well, isn't it? God says, return to Not the land, don't return to your former ways, but he says, return to me personally. Come to me, to your God. As he calls them, what is the beautiful promise that he gives? Not just you need to return to me, but he says, if you do so, I will return to you. God says, I will come. I will personally dwell with you. I will be your God once again. Yeah, even more than this, as God gives this promise, as he says, I will dwell with you. What would the people have heard? What would they have understood God to mean when he says, I will dwell with you, I will be with you, I will return to you? Well, again, think of the situation. As they look around them, the temple is no more. The temple was the very real and physical manifestation of God's presence with his people. And so as God says, I will return to you, what they're thinking, what they're, you know, the terms they're thinking of is God will come back to his temple. God will dwell again physically, finally, once again with his people. 
this thing he hasn't done for 70 years at this point. And as God tells them this, as he gives them this call to repent, as he gives them this promise that he will return, he's also telling them, in order for me to do so, in order for me to truly finally dwell in your midst, well, frankly, you need to be the right kind of people. He says, in order for this to happen, you need new cleansed hearts. You need a heart that is changed from its former ways. You need new allegiances. Allegiances not uh, of this world, not trusting in the things of this world, but you need to once again trust in me as I commanded you. You can imagine the people are growing or have been growing impatient as they've been waiting year after year. They, they've come back into the land. They've been around for 20 years. Even the fact that they stopped building the temple shows this kind of complacency. And they're probably wondering, why isn't God doing anything? Why isn't God working? Why isn't he doing these amazing things he promised to do after he took us out to exile and after he promised to bring us back? Why isn't he doing the things we're hoping he would do? And it's because God tells us clearly, for my return to be good news to you, for me to come back in a way that will be a blessing to you, you need to get ready. You need to be, again, the right kind of people. So as God rekindles this relationship with his people as he speaks this word after a long silence. God tells them, in order for me to come back, the first thing that needs to happen is you need to repent. True repentance is essential. It is unavoidable. It needs to happen in order for all the promises that I made to your fathers to come true. Same in our day, isn't it? Isn't it that in order to come into the kingdom, even Jesus himself, what was the first thing he said as he proclaims the message of the kingdom? Even John the Baptist before him, the message was repent and believe. You know, the kingdom is at hand. God is saying the same thing. Repent, believe, and the kingdom will come upon you. And it doesn't stop there. The first thing we see this morning, the first thing the people need before God will do anything, before God can do anything in their midst is they need to truly repent. And yet, that repentance, of course, we know repentance has certain fruit. It has certain outflows, things that come naturally out of it. And that is our second point this morning. Not only do they need true repentance, not only do they need to change their ways, not only do they need to change their hearts, but secondly, God tells them, in order for me to come back, the second thing that you need is true obedience. First, you need to repent of what you've done wrong. You need to turn your hearts back to me. But now you need to live in a way that is reflective of that changed hearts. And God shows this, shows why this is necessary as he goes back and he looks at their parents once again. He refers back to that previous generation. In verse 4, he says, Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. God says, you know, I, I proclaim the same message to your parents. I said, return to me. The same message I am proclaiming now. But the emphasis, he says, is the, you know, the message he was proclaiming through the prophets was return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. Not simply their hearts, but their actions were not reflective of who they were called to be. He says, you need to change your behavior, your lifestyle, you need to re repent from your sin and turn from it and live lives of obedience. In short, God is saying here in verse 4, don't be like your parents. 
which for any of us who have kids or have parents, we know that's easier said than done, isn't it? For those of us with kids, you know, for better or worse, we see those habits, those traits that we ourselves have, we see them naturally without even having to teach them to our children. They're just copied, they're imitated by our little ones. Even for ourselves, as, we, as I, as a parent, you know, parent my children, there are times when I do something and I have that terrifying realization that that's the same thing that my dad or my mom said to me when I was a kid. Could be a good thing, could be a bad thing, but you know, for better or worse, we imitate, we copy, we uh, you know, naturally just act like our parents. You know, when we stub our toe, maybe we say the same word that our parents said, to us, or said out loud when we were kids. It's not just a natural thing. It's not just in regard to these natural abilities and habits and likes and dislikes, but we know when it comes to sin, we are like our parents. This is a pattern we see in Scripture, right, that the sins of the fathers are so often carried out in the lives of the children that there's this pattern of habitual sin that is carried from generation to generation. And, of course, if we trace all the way back, that's because of our first parent, of Adam and Eve, that we have inherited their sinful nature, that we are like our parents in a very real way, that we have inherited their sin, their guilt, their corruption. As David says in Psalm 51, right, we are born into sin. We are born and inclined from the very womb to evil. So it's not just imitation, but our nature is to be like our parents. This is something Paul wrestles with in several places. But you know, in Romans 7, you know, Paul is saying, you know, the, the things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing them. That I can't avoid this sin nature, this sin that is a part of me. You know, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And yet God here is saying, don't be like your parents. You need to change. You need to be different. And to drive the point home, God asks this rhetorical question in verse 5. He says, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? The implication here, where are your fathers? The implication is they're gone. They went out to exile. They were punished for their sins. They are no more. And as he asks about the prophets, the idea is that you know, the prophets came over and over again, and then there came a day when there were no more prophets. Even here, we want to pause for a moment and just remember God's patience in the days of the former prophets, this patience before this time of exile that God over and over again pleaded with his people, please return from your ways, right? This isn't just a one-time message, but this was the constant refrain, refrain of the prophets, please return to me, return from your wicked ways, return to the husband of your youth, return to your God. God is patient with them. You know, he's saying, I sent all the former prophets, they had no excuse, I begged and pleaded with them. I asked them. I commanded them, repent from your sins. He says, but they're no more. They decided to stay in their sinful ways, and they are gone. God is saying, or reminding them, there is a point when my patience, although it is wonderful, although it is lengthy, there is a day when my patience will stop. You know, now is the day of repentance. Now is the day of Salvation now is the day of turning, which again, this is the same message in Jesus's day. Repent, the day of salvation is at hand. It's the same message of our day. Repent, now is the day of salvation. Yet contrasted to the parents who are no more 
In verse 6, God says this. He says, but my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? The contrast here is, right, the prophets are gone. The former generation is God. But my word remains. My word endures. My word is steadfast. It does not change. And what did this word do? God says, this word is this, the word that overtook your parents. This language of a word overtaking is a reference to the book of Deuteronomy as God gives his covenant people this long list of blessings and this long list of cursings. And he says that if you continue in your sinful ways, that all of these curses will one day overtake you. They will come upon you. Here God is reminding them that word that I gave to your fathers generations and generations ago, that word still endures Those blessings and curses, that covenant that I made with your fathers, that word still abides. It still stands and you are still held accountable to it. So here God's not just saying, you know, be better than your parents. You take a step in the right direction. He's saying you are still obligated to keep all of this law. In, In exhaustive detail, every stipulation, everything that I commanded, it abides. My word, my law remains. So again, you need to repent, but you also need to turn from your evil ways. Well, let's, let's take stock now as this passage is about to conclude. Let's consider what God has said. Again, God says you need a changed heart, step one. You need a heartfelt obedience. You need a renewal from the inside out, which causes you to now walk in the right direction. Now we want to ask the question, is that it? Is that all God is saying in this passage? Well, I would say no. There is much more not only that God is saying, but much more that is needed. Because in order for these things to occur, in order for this repentance to happen, in order for this new obedience to happen, something much, much greater is needed. And that's our third point this morning. Not only does God call us to true repentance, not only does he call us to true obedience, but... God also says the third thing that we need, this last thing, and the most fundamental thing that we need is the grace of God. Amen. The grace of God. Amen. And when I ask that, you know, think about it. what if Zechariah, what if the book ended right here? What if we only had these six verses? Would that be good news? And I would say, no, this in and of itself, it's necessary, of course. We need to hear these words. But where would this Israel, where would this opening leave the nation of Israel? Well, it would leave them right back where their parents were. In fact, it would put them in an even worse situation, right? Their parents had the king. Their parents had the temple. Their parents had, you know, the power of the nation of Israel. They are kind of in this backwater country now with no king, no temple. They're under foreign rule. And God's saying, you need to do the same things that your parents were called to do. And more than this, there are some tensions that this text itself creates for us. As God gives this promise, God says, I will return to you. This promise of him coming, dwelling with his people. Well, in order for him to do that, the Old Testament is clear. Holiness has to occur first. God can't dwell with an unholy people. God needs to make the land and the people holy before he can come in their midst. And even when he's talking about this word that overtook your fathers, right? The people are still God says, you're still under these blessings and these curses. You need to obey. And yet, again, 
the book stopped here, would not be good news. And yet the whole rest of the book is really that. It is good news. It is the solution to this problem that God presents, this real and necessary problem of sin and holiness. The rest of the book is this series of visions and prophecies, again, of what God himself, not the people, not through their striving, but what God himself will accomplish on behalf of his people, how God will, you know, chapter after chapter of Zechariah will work out salvation for his people. Don't want to give a full summary of this book, but, you know, uh, a couple of chapters later, God gives this vision of the, of the priests, Joshua. He's clothed in filthy garments and he's being accused by Satan. And God gives him new, clean garments, this priestly outfit, this picture of God cleansing his people, giving them new garments, white garments, not by something they did, but God himself clothing them, this picture of what God will do one day to his people this reoccurring promise of this one called the branch, this you know, uh, one who will come from the line of David, who it says will rebuild the temple. Truly, finally, one day, he will rebuild the temple, not the people of Israel, but the branch. Even all the way to Zechariah 12, we hear about this one who will be pierced for the transgressions of his people. This one who will finally bear the covenant curses that God had issued. This one who will more than just in exile to a foreign land, but in true exile and true death will suffer the curses so that God's people might receive the blessings and the promises. And it's not just that this text is preparatory for the grace that's about to come, but this text itself, this introduction itself is just saturated with God's grace. This text is rooted in that very promise that it's about to expand upon, this promise of the Messiah coming, this one who will redeem his people. You know, we want to see that all of God's work is a work of God's grace. It's not that we do the first part and then God then will act in grace, but from beginning to end, we want to remember God's work is a work of grace. Even as this passage starts, right, I was angry with, with your fathers, but what's the first thing God says to this new generation? He says, Return to me, and I will return to you. What a gracious call, is it not? God is not silent. He hasn't stopped talking to them. He comes back to them. He says, again, as he has to every generation, return to me, and I will be uh, return to you. It's a call to repent. It's not just because we need to repent, because that's the only way through which we are saved. But it's a call to repentance because God is the type of God who hears the prayer of a repentant sinner, that he is a gracious God, a God who gives a promise, I will, no matter when, no matter where, no matter how, if you hear this word to return to me and you do it, I will come to you. Not only does this passage begin with this gracious call to repent, but the passage ends with you know, something only God can do. We're told in the last Half of verse 6, as God's recounted what he did with the previous generation, and now switches back to the current generation, and the people say, uh, so, or it says, so they, speaking of the current generation, so they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. The people's response, the fact that they actually repent, unlike their fathers, this is the work of God's grace, right? They, there's no hesitation. There's no 
you know, quibbling with God or fighting back. They simply say, God, you are in the right. We are in the wrong. We need to repent. Not just individually, but this is a, you could say, a liturgical act, a corporate act. They, they you know, corporately say together, we are sinners. We repent of our sins. You want to ask, what is it that distinguishes this generation from their parents' generation? Are they better off? Are they more obedient? Are they more insightful? Do they have some wisdom that their parents didn't have? Well, no, they have the exact same word of God. So what's the difference is that God has made this call to repent effective. God has changed their hearts, has affected what they need to repent. As Westminster Larger Catechism says, you know, the, the question is, what is repentance unto life? What are the characteristics of true repentance it says, repentance unto life is not a work, it is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby out of the sight and uh, sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sin, so that he turns from them to God purposing and endeavoring uh, consist, or constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. See, so it's not repentance and then obedience and then grace. It's grace, God working in us through his spirit, creating repentance, renewing our wills, renewing our hearts so that we might come to him repentant, sorrowful for our sin, working out in us so that we might now pursue in the way of new and true obedience. God renews our wills so that we might love him, so we might have new allegiance to him, that we might submit to his rule as our true king. And our obedience is the outflowing of this, you know, our, our response of gratitude for what God has done for us. As God kills our old man, as he puts to death you know, our original father, Adam, he makes us not look like Adam anymore, and he conforms us more and more to the image of his son, he conforms us more and more to his sure word. I said as we started, this was kind of the fundamental things, the first thing God needed to say to this generation in Zechariah's day, but of course this is fundamental for us to hear as well. We need to hear that, yes, repentance is necessary, that obedience is necessary, but they are the outflow of what God has done for us. They're not something that we earn or use to merit God's favor. This is fundamental not just because we need it once and then we move on, but it's also fundamental because this is what we need to hear continually. And if you don't believe me, just come back to church next Sunday and you will agree with me. Because it doesn't take 70 years for us to forget about God. It doesn't take 70 years for us to wander away. It takes us, I mean, a minute, it takes us a day, seven days. And we come back week after week. We return and we hear Week after week, that same message, God says, return to me, and I will return to you. Even as Luther, you know, the very first statement of his 95 Theses, which he uh, nailed to the church, in, uh, or the church door in Wittenberg, the first statement, the first Theses, Luther said, you know, in, in a similar way to Zechariah's day, you know, this kind of, uh, this lack, this you know, period of silence of God's word being proclaimed. And the first thing Luther says is not just that we need to start with repentance, but he says the whole of the Christian life is repentance. Continually, we are constantly turning to God in repentance. 
So just as in Zechariah's day, God calls us even this morning, and he calls us again and again to repent, to turn from our sins, to turn to him, to trust in his grace. To be reminded, we can't do this on our own. We can't bring in the kingdom. We can't bring God, you know, God's presence to dwell with us. He must do the work. He must cleanse us. He must restore us, renew us. And whether it's the first time we call on God for repentance or whether it's the thousandth time, God's promise is sure that as we return to him, he will return to us. He will forgive us. He will cleanse us. He will dwell with us as our Emmanuel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are much more eager to call us and to seek us than we are to repent and to turn to you. We thank you that you have acted first in grace, that you have done in us what we could not do, that you have redeemed us. We ask that through this work, Lord, that through the, the person and work of Christ as we are united to him, that you would conform us more and more into him, his image. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.